0: is coming, right? And so this little card that we have you fill out, that's for a reason. It's because we want to make sure we have a correct address for you. And we're mailing some things out about our Easter um, services coming up, and we want to make sure you get that. So make sure you fill that out. Here's the other thing um, that I want to do, kind of a family meeting, if we can, for just a minute. Right, if you're visiting, I'm glad you're here. You can set in on this little family meeting that we're going to have. But as a church, I want, I want to talk about this. Since Easter is coming, this is a very important time for us. Um, this is a great time for you to invite your friends. They're more willing probably to come during this time of year than any other time of year. So who, who are you thinking about? Who are you praying about that you wish could be here with you? If you don't have that person, start praying that God would would give you that person. Um, We've done this in the past. We have little white cards I've handed out. and said, write the name of that person and pray for them. Um, Maybe you need a new one of those. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come and ask me. I would love to share it. But who are you praying for that needs to come and to be a part of this? And I've learned this um, years of research, years and years in the church, this idea that most people come to an understanding of who Jesus is because of their friends. Their friends teach them, or tell them, or make a connection with them. They look in somebody else's life and they say, "I want what you have. What is it that what makes you different? How come you do what you do? I want that," and that's how they get connected. Now, um, most of the time in, in our church setting, we have learned this as well at Crestview. When you invite somebody, most of the time their number one stop is our website. They go to our website very first thing. The next thing they do um, is come to a church service, and we know that the very first thing that happens when they come to church is they pull in our parking lot. This took a lot of research on our part, I know, to learn this, <laughs> that the first thing that happens when they come here is they pull in our parking lot. I know it's deep, steep deep stuff. Um, but we, we get this as well. We know that we're going to relocate someday, we're, we're um, saving money, we're raising money so that we can um, relocate, build a, a new building. Therefore, we have made a decision as a church leadership not to do big capital improvements. We want to make repairs and do things when we need them. And therefore, we know our parking lot needs some repair. But we also know that we're probably not going to add on to it. And therefore, if you have ever parked in the grass here at Crestview, I want to say thank you for parking in the grass. And if you had to this last winter in the ice and the snow park in the grass, thank you even more for doing that. It leaves room in our parking lot for when our guests do show up. But here's what I'm after with this. Over the next few weeks, um, right now we've got one guy. Joe Dillon has been doing this for the last few years, standing out in the parking lot, waving at people, helping them find a spot, just being a great greeter. Absolutely. Where you at, Joe? Is he in here? He's back in the corner because he probably just came in from the parking lot. I appreciate Joe and what, he's did, what he has done, but dudes, we need a few more guys um, to help him. If you'd be willing to come a little early, um, stand out there um, and just wave at people and help them find a spot, a new spot, a place to park, and make sure it's okay to park in the, in the grass. Let people know that. that. That way, when my friend that I've been praying for shows up, my friend... I want them to feel welcome from the time they enter the parking lot all the way through. And so I would love that. If, if you're like, that's not my deal, um, then stand at the front door, stand in the lobby, be a greeter, maybe even in here. What can you do to make this place home? Write your name down on that card. Um, let us know that that can be you, and we'll get you plugged in um, and on a schedule to help with us in that. So here's a, another thing. And this is where I'm going a little bit this morning, but we got one more thing before we get there. But have you ever read this book? And wonder, did they really do that? Is that really a thing people do? Who really does that? And one of those things to me that stands out is baptism. I know I'm your pastor, right? That shouldn't come from your pastor. Did he really just say that? He doesn't understand baptism? No, I understand it completely. I just think that sometimes it's a little odd that we think that when somebody um, says, I believe in who Jesus is and I want to do this Christianity thing, the very next step or thing that we do is dunk you underwater. That sounds a little strange. And sometimes we're reading it like, do we really have to do that? That sounds a little odd to me, but yes. Everybody that we see in this book that came to an understanding of who Jesus is after Jesus was here, they got dunked underwater. They call it baptism. They, they admit they need Jesus, they believe in Him, they, they make a confession of faith, and then they get baptized. Last week we had a baptism in this hour. Many of you were here for this, but if you were not here, we want to show you this again, and I want you to watch this testimony, and this baptism is pretty special. Watch this.
1: So I'm Blakely Benning. Uh, we've been attending Crestview for about two and a half years now. Um, I grew up in a very strong Christian home um, and went to a church that, um, grew up in a church that had a very strong um, Christian education program. Uh, when I look back on my childhood and um, church was just a part of life and and how we participated, it kind of checked all the boxes of um, you know, went to the summer camps and the mission trips, Um, also memorized scripture and all the lessons and did all of those things. Um, But it was never personal for me. Um, As I grew into my teen years, I was very rebellious and um, very selfish and stubborn and uh, did not, outside the church sphere, did not really live or walk a a Christian life whatsoever. when I was 15 our, our church um, offered a catechism class it was a 10-week class uh, for high school freshmen very much akin to like a confirmation type class and at the end of it uh, part of the experience was being baptized uh, by pouring into the fellowship of the church um, and at the time I felt it was I approached it, it was just expected, that that's just what you did. So there was no meaning in it for me. It didn't uh, come from the heart. It was just something I thought I had to do. Fast forward a few years, um, in my twenties um, is when I, when God really think got through to me and that's when it became real and became mine. In recent years I've had the opportunity to kind of um, look at what does obedience mean in a Christian walk, not as a means to salvation, but in response to salvation. What does that look like? What does that mean? What did Christ actually teach? What did he say? How has mankind interpreted it? Um, What does that mean? And through that course of study, um, a word study came out about baptism as it relates to specifically immersion, as opposed to pouring. And so um, I always regretted that my first baptism didn't mean what it should have to me, um, but I didn't really know what I could do about it. Um, So when I saw that study on immersion and hearing sermons from Pastor Devin and some great conversations with with my husband and and also with Pastor Devin, um, I'm seeking to be baptized as as a response to Christ's example Um, because he himself was immersed. So my first baptism wasn't mine, Um, but I didn't own it. I wasn't invested in it, Um, but this one I can claim today.
0: So I don't know if that resonates with some of you. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe that's, you know, a step that you need to take, and you're saying, you know, I've done everything else, but I haven't done that yet. Well, let me encourage you. I want to challenge you in that. Who does that? We do. We teach that because it was taught in here, and we would love for you to take that step as well um, and uh, make that confession of faith and step forward in baptism, that'd be awesome. So come and find me afterwards and we'll, we'll chat about that. So there's other places as well uh, that I read through here when I'm reading this book that sometimes I look, did I pick up the right book? Is this really what it says? Do, do I really have to do that? Who, who does that kind of thing? Do I have to do those things really to be a follower and a believer? Is this what I really have to do? And Jesus is the one who teaches most of those things when it says it. And Jesus will come along and he'll teach things like, um, you need to turn the other cheek. This is something that, that he teaches. He tells us to do. He says that we need to go the extra mile, right? Or, or if we give them our coat as well. If somebody takes our shirt, give them your coat as well. Go the extra mile. Do the extra stuff with that. And it's not just a motivational talk. He's actually saying, this is a tough deal that I'm going to ask you to go and do. Like, love your enemies. Who does that? I don't even like my enemies, let alone do I have to love them? This sounds crazy, especially if I look at this list as a list of rules, a black and white list of things that I have to do. And if I don't do these things, then I might end up in hell. And if I do these things, how well do I have to do them? Is this a checklist that I have to do every day? Or what does this look like for me? In order for me to get to heaven, how good do I have to be at this list? Um, When we read this, really, my first step is often to argue with Jesus. I want to push back. I want to to start an argument with him. What do you mean, turn the other cheek? I'm supposed to just stand there and let people keep hitting me back and forth? It doesn't make sense, Jesus. I don't get it. And I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't think that's what he's come up with. He's not giving us an extra list of rules that we have to obey. He's not adding on or piling it up and saying, if you don't do this, you're not going to make it to heaven. I believe what Jesus is doing is teaching us who to be. Who do you want to be? What kind of a person do you want to be? What kind of a life do you want to live? That's the question we opened with last week. That's where we're going um, all this month with this. What kind of a person do you want to be? Do you want to live a life of bitterness and hate and anger and rage? Is Is that what we want coming out of us when negative or bad things happen to us? Or do we want to live a life... That when something happens in our life, we can approach it with love and peace and compassion. And none of this makes sense to me if we pull it out of context. If we just look at it in isolation, we say, we take a half a sentence of what Jesus said, and we say, yeah, but he said it this way, and we take it out of context, and it often doesn't make sense. We have to go back and try and understand it. What is he getting at with this? What's the foundation of what he's teaching, and how do we get to that point? And if I can understand the foundation, I can understand all of what he teaches. But if we take that foundation away, everything else crumbles along with it. So I don't think he's given us extra list of rules to follow. I think he's trying to get us a better way to live. How do we live this way? A life of forgiveness something that comes up out of the heart. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter five, I'd love for you to turn there. If you have your phones, get them, get them open. This is a sermon on the Mount and this is Jesus teaching. And there's a few lines in this sermon that we read and go, wait a minute. Who does that kind of thing? Do, does he really do that? So Jesus said it this way. Um, chapter five, verse 38, you have heard it said, I'm an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what Jesus is doing is he's going back to the Old Testament and he's quoting um, a list of rules that was given to the Jews many, many years ago. Um, This is found in Leviticus. This is found in Exodus. There's a couple places where we can find this list of rules that was given to the Jews and it was set up specifically. It was set up for a reason. It was set up so that People knew how to handle situations when something happened, when something bad happened. Um, judges and courts, they could, you could go to court, you could have a jury, you could figure this out, and you could say, if this happens, then this is how you should respond to it. So, it was there for a reason, and it was a pretty exclusive list. If somebody breaks your arm, you can break their arm. If so when pokes you in the eye, you poke them in the eye back, and someone would judge this. If it talks about livestock. If somebody kills your cow, you can take their cow. So last week, I mentioned that. We were talking about this, and I got asked the question after church. Um, what happens, though, if somebody kills your cow, you take one of theirs. Do you get to keep the dead cow? Because that's pretty good you know, meat, right? Yeah, make a good barbecue. So I said, I don't know. I'll look into it. So I did a little bit deeper research, and I found out that, yes, you get to keep the cow um, and barbecue it as long as you invite your pastor over for the barbecue. <laughs> it's, it's in the fine print. you got to be able to know what you're looking for. you got to be a pastor to, to look for that kind of fine print stuff. But I'd even say, even more importantly, if it was a pig. I love barbecued pork, but that would be an Old Testament. That wouldn't have been in there with the Jews. That would have been a whole separate issue. <laughs> Let's move on before I get in trouble. It was set up as rules to know how to handle situations, but it was also designed to keep you from going overboard so that if somebody poked you in the eye, you didn't poke them in both eyes. You know, If somebody broke your arm, you didn't say, I'm going to break your arm and your leg just to get back at you. The reason is because we want justice. And we live in a world, I live in a world, you do as well, that when something negative or bad happens, you want there to be justice in the world that keeps some people from committing those crimes, from doing those things. So we want justice, especially if it's against me. If somebody hurts me and does something to me, there's a part of me that wants to get back at that. I want you to hurt like you've hurt me. I want you to know how this feels, and and we want justice. And oftentimes, it feels good for a little while, right? It feels good, not for very long, but just for a little while, it might feel good. And then we go, oh, it really doesn't feel good because it it doesn't work this way. This this idea doesn't work because pretty soon we're just all going to walk around blind and toothless, right? If this is how it's supposed to operate, and I don't think God ever intended it to be like that. I don't think God ever set it up for us to take it into our own hands, for us to administer that retaliation. I don't think that's what God intended for us, but yet it got out of hand. By the time Jesus came along, and this is what Jesus was teaching, the law of retaliation had become justification for personal revenge. So people were saying, I'm going to do it. If somebody does something to me, I'm going to go right back at them. I'm going to get right back at them. I'm going to take it out on them. And it had gotten out of hand. And that's what Jesus was teaching about. They had forgotten about the courts. They had forgotten about a jury, someone else monitoring this. And they were just doing things. So Jesus comes along and says, I know you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, so this is where he goes, but I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. What does that mean? Jesus, I don't get it. I'm just not supposed to resist. I'm supposed to just stand there, and if somebody hits me, I'm supposed to let him hit me again and hit me again. How, how many times am I supposed to let him hit me? You know, well, this doesn't make sense. I'm supposed to just resist anything. Well, let's go back to the foundation. Like I said, we got to have an understanding of where this is coming from. And clearly, evil is to be resisted. Because if you read the rest of this book, you're going to find places where we do resist evil. In fact, Jesus did. There was a time he walked into the church. It was the temple and the, the leaders of the temple were taking advantage of the people coming to worship. They were bringing in their sacrifices and there were people standing at the gates saying, you can't bring that in. It's not good enough. You got you to get rid of that one. Yeah, we'll take it. We'll sell you one. Um, but they were char- overcharging for it. They were taking advantage of the worshipers coming in and Jesus stepped in and said, not in my house and he flipped their tables over and he kicked them out of the church. He said not here. He resisted evil. So what does this mean? James even does it. In his book, James chapter 4 verse 7 it says submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Is James wrong? Or is Jesus wrong? First Peter, it's there again. Peter talks about this resist him, meaning Satan. Stand firm in your faith. So is this a contradiction? Is this book really full of contradictions? Did one say one thing and one mean another? What? I don't get this. How does Jesus say this, and what are we supposed to learn from it? To me, I think when he says this, do not resist the one who is evil, it becomes a translation issue, and we've got to understand what happened here. So Jesus often, most of the time when he spoke and when he taught, he spoke in um, the Aramaic language. So he would speak Aramaic, but yet most of the people that he was speaking to, they also spoke Greek. Matthew, when he wrote this um, in his letter, in his book, when he wrote it, what we're reading, he wrote it in Greek. So here's Jesus speaking in Aramaic. Matthew interprets it, writes it in Greek, and now we've translated it into English. Can you see how we can get confused on some things when it's translated that many times or interpreted like that? It can get confusing. So we look at it, and we read resist, and we think... Just stand there. Be passive. Don't do anything. However, Jesus was actually taking it from a Hebrew context. Because that's what the Old Testament was written in. So he was speaking in Aramaic. Matthew wrote it in Greek. But in order for us to really understand, I think we have to go back to the Hebrew to understand what he's saying. And those that understood the Hebrew context would have heard Jesus say, do not fear. Do not be afraid of the evil one. And do not resist retaliation. Um, Or sorry, do resist retaliation. Don't try to get even with them. Don't retaliate on your own um, the evil that's happening to you. Don't do it yourself. There's a system. I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, just be passive. This is not about pacifism. This is not um, a statement that Jesus is making to governments that say, just let whatever happen. Um, he's not telling governments not to defend their country or the people that live there. This is not a statement to you saying be passive, um, be weak in regards to self defense, or don't protect your family. No way. I'm going to protect my family. And there's going to be some self defense if something happens with that. In fact, Jesus was one that when he was sending out his disciples, there was a time he sent his disciples out on a mission. He said, you guys need to go. Oh, make sure you have a sword, he said to them. If you don't have a sword, sell your coat. <laughs> uh, I know you might get cold, but I'd rather you have a sword, because it's a dangerous world out there. Get a sword and take a sword with you when you go, because it's, it's dangerous. So when Jesus tells us here, um, don't resist the evil one, it doesn't mean don't resist evil in general, I believe we should stand up to evil. Bad things that are happening around us. We, it would be a disservice to the people around us if we saw something bad going on and we didn't do something about it. There is a time where we need to stand up for that. However, how we do that is important. So Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 12. He talks about this and he says, um, never pay back evil for evil. That's not what we should do. So if somebody... Um, does something to you that's wrong, don't do something wrong back to them. That's not the way you should go about it. Again, in that same chapter, Romans 12, he says, never avenge yourselves. Don't take it into your own hands to do. He actually says it this way. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God will do that. Conquer evil, he tells us in the same chapter, Romans 12, conquer evil by doing good. So if you see something bad happening, continue to do good. Live a good life and let good overcome that. So rather than getting back at someone that has hurt you with something bad back to them, that's not going to help the situation. Continue to live a good life. Continue to do the good things that God, Jesus has taught us to do. So I want you to hear this, though. Um, this, I think this is very important. If you are in an abusive relationship right now, if, whether it's physical or, or emotional, Do not listen to this statement that Jesus says. Turn the other cheek and think you just got to take it. That's not what he's teaching you. And if you're in a relationship like that right now, get out. Don't let it continue. And if you don't know how to get out, if you don't know how to stop that, come and talk to us. Find somebody on our staff that you can talk to. Let us help you with that. I don't think Jesus is teaching that you just have to take that abuse over and over and over. That's not the lesson that's being taught here. Yes, you need to defend yourself. No, don't take retaliation into your own hands. But yes, set up some boundaries for protection and let somebody come along and help you escape that situation that you're in. I believe we we all are created in God's image and we deserve basic dignity and respect and consideration. That's to us as well as how we treat others. So don't do anything negative or wrong back, but yet you've got to find a way to get out. So what is Jesus really teaching us here? Verse 39, as he continues, he says it this way, "'But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, "'turn to him the other.'" Okay, so what are you just saying? Doesn't that just contradict everything that you've just said? I don't understand, right? How do, how do we get to this? Well, let's break it down. For a Jew, during this um, time period, a slap um, or a strike in the face would have been worse than anything else. That would have been demeaning. That would have been an insult for someone to strike you in the face in any way. They would have probably rather been hurt physically somewhere else. You know, punch me anywhere else, but... Don't strike me in the face. That's, that's an insulting, difficult thing. It means you're, you're less than human. It'd be a huge insult. So there's, a, there's significance here with the right... Um, hand as well. When we do a little research and understand during this time period, for sure, there was a dominant right hand um, attitude. So everything happened with the right hand. Even those people that were left handed, many things that happened, happened with the right hand. So um, if somebody reached out their hand to shake your hand, it was a sign to say, you know, I don't have anything. I'm not trying to attack you. This is friendly. I'm trying to be friendly with you. And many things happen to be with the right hand. The left hand um, was often seen as something you didn't use like that in public. It was the right hand. So the right hand, and then it says specifically to strike somebody on the right cheek. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and strike them on the right cheek with your right hand. All right? Go ahead and do that amongst yourselves. eh? All right, you guys jumped at it real quick here in the middle. And some of you are thinking, I wish I would have sat by that person over there. I really wanted to. So what would that mean? For you to strike somebody with your right hand on their right cheek, it was a backhanded slap. So this really wasn't about getting into a fight. You know, It wasn't a right hook and a left hook blow. Being slapped in the cheek refers to someone backhanding you with that. It wasn't to inflict pain. It was to demean you. It was to put you down. It was to insult you, especially in public. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is if anybody strikes you like that, don't strike them back in the same way. Don't retaliate like that. In fact, be willing to take another insult. Be willing to let them insult you again. Stand up for what is true within that. This is more about who you are than about what you do. The natural thing for us would be to strike back. If somebody insults us, if somebody makes us feel bad, hey, I'm going to just dish it back at them. I'm going to let them have it, right? But that's not what we're usually taught throughout Scripture, Solomon writes about this in Proverbs chapter 25. says it this way, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So if somebody insults you, if somebody strikes you, backhands you with a comment, don't give another one back. In fact, be nice. Say something nice. They're the ones that will carry the guilt, and you won't. Again, chapter 15 of Proverbs, Solomon writes, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And you've seen this. It will escalate. If you you say something back, it just gets out of control really quickly. But if you give a soft answer, it usually ends the conversation. Abraham Lincoln, I like this. Good advice. He says, when arguing with a fool, make sure your opponent isn't doing the same thing. Good advice, right? And I've heard it put this way before. If you're arguing with a fool, um, people that are listening in sometimes have a hard time distinguishing between who's who. Because you just get caught in it. And my favorite quote on this one is Mark Twain. He said, never argue with stupid people. They'll drag you down to their level and then beat you with experience. <laughs> right? Take the high road on this. Again, Solomon. Most of these quotes come from somewhere in Scripture. Proverbs 18 to a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When someone's arguing with you like this and they give you a backhanded comment that's meant to insult you or put you down, they're just wanting to start a fight. They're not in it to understand your point of view. And by turning the other cheek, It's not Jesus saying you should just become a doormat, right, and let people walk all over you. No, standing up for yourself in that situation is actually standing up for your dignity. It's it's giving a challenge without striking back or going to their level to do it. This is more, it's more making a statement about who you are than about what you do. And I think Jesus is really giving us a lesson more on what we are not to do than whether what we should be doing. So instead of reading this and saying, I have to turn the other cheek, really what we should look at is say, what's he telling me not to do? Jesus is actually telling us, don't be avenging, don't retaliate, but with a humble, gentle spirit, just stand up for what's right and what's true and who you are. In my experience with this, what I've noticed over the years is most people that do this backhanded kind of stuff, the insulting with this, um, they fail most often to realize how inconsistent they are with their comments and what they do. They're pretty inconsistent. It can't keep up. So for you, seek the truth. Stand for what's true and let the truth play out. And most often it will. People will come around to understand this. Jesus, when he was on trial, he did this. Um, Luke chapter 22, here was Jesus, he was arrested and he's standing on trial before the courts and they ask him the question, are you the son of God? They want him to say it. They're questioning him in that, giving him the direct, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, look, if I answer you, if I give you the truth, you won't believe it anyway. So they ask him again, they push him some more, are you the son of God? And his response, I think, it's turning the other cheek. And instead of playing their game at their level, he just looks at him and says, you said it. You're the one that just made the claim. You're the one who just said it. And they took that as his testimony. And from there, after he turned his other cheek, that's when they beat him and they killed him. I know, so you're sitting there going, great, that's our example. That's what we're supposed to do. Look how well that turned out for Jesus. It turned out exactly the way God intended it. And I'm so grateful that it did. Because he did it at the right time for the right reasons. When Jesus turned the other cheek and let that happen, giving us that best example, it meant then that I have that sacrifice, that Jesus made that sacrifice for me. Then I get to follow in that footsteps. Who does that kind of thing? Jesus did, and I'm grateful that he did it. That he followed what his father asked him to do. Because of that, I get to have forgiveness and eternal life with him. Who else does that? We do. It continued in Acts chapters three and four. We read a story about Peter and John. Peter and John now, after Jesus had died and risen from the grave, he'd come back from the dead. They're out telling people, "We we can't stop." They said, "We got to tell people about Jesus and what he did and what we saw. We saw him alive, then we saw him dead, then we saw him alive again. We got to tell people the good news about this." And they came across a guy who was crippled. He had been crippled since birth. He could, he's never walked. This guy is lame. He's never walked before, and they healed him. And now guys up walking around is proof of what they trust and believe in. Here's a guy that couldn't walk. Now he's walking and they're telling people about Jesus. And and the same authorities that arrested Jesus, they come along and they arrest Peter and John. And they say, you got to stop doing this. And they say, we can't. They say, who gives you this power? And they say, Jesus, the guy who you arrested, the guy who you killed, he came back from the dead. He gives us the power to tell these stories and to bring this guy back from the dead. And I love it. Here, here it is. Chapter 4 of Acts, verse 13, says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So here was Peter and John. They were standing before the same courts that Jesus had stood before. They just had to turn the other cheek. When they got insulted, when they were told to stop doing it, they were just like, here's, here's a guy walking. Here's our proof. Yesterday, he couldn't walk. Today, he can. They didn't have to even say anything. They just had to stand there. And so they insulted them some more, and they told them, hey, stop. Just whatever you do, just stop preaching. Verse 21, it says, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. I believe this, guys. I believe it. When you stand for the truth, the truth will play out. When you turn the other cheek and you don't retaliate evil for evil, and you do what you know is right, God will bless. Because that's who we're supposed to be. What kind of a person do you want to be? What kind of a life do you want to live? I think that's what Jesus is teaching us here, and that's what he wants us to follow what he wants us to become, who he wants us to become, and how he wants us to live in our lives this way. I want this challenge to be for you in this. Um, more about what we do. It's more about who we are. But I do want to challenge you in this. Maybe for you, it's to take that next step, um, to do something challenging in that. Maybe for you, it's a situation that you're in, you just need some prayer about it. Um, catch us and we'll we'll pray for you. There'll be somebody in the prayer room after this service. We can just lift you up and encourage you through whatever situation you're in. Right Now we're going to get our hearts ready for a time to remember Jesus and what he did for us in communion. So if you would, let's stand together and sing.